Well, please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We will be starting chapter 2 today. It's just flying by. I want to hold on to these passages here. It's just going so fast. I love, love, love this book. Well, let's talk about points of contact. The points of contact that Paul had with the church in Corinth. The church of God in Corinth. Remember, that's how he speaks of this church. He doesn't call them the church of Corinth. The church of God, that just so happens to be in Corinth. We do well to dwell on the timeline and get our bearings a bit. So um, let's bring up, I think it's just called presentation one there. That'll give us the first point of contact. That takes us all the way back to 49 AD. Was that a good year? Man, uh, yeah. (laughs) 49 AD. Well, this church in Corinth was planted by Paul. Paul was the missionary whom God used to start this church sometime around 49 AD. You'll notice as we go along here, the uh, years have that little squiggly line in front of them that say, yeah, you know, that's what that means. And so about 49 AD. And when Paul planted that church, he was there for 18 months. So he was there quite a long time. There, uh, of course, were churches that were planted rather quickly, and some took longer. You might remember he was in Ephesus three years. That was really an extreme amount of time. But he was with the Corinthians for 18 months, which is quite remarkable. And as you consider all the things we're going to talk about this morning, about his points of contact with the Corinthians, he really spent a lot of time caring for the Corinthians by letter and in person. But uh, he planted the church on his second missionary journey around 49 A.D., and you can read about that in Acts 18, and in Acts 18.11, we get this simple statement that Paul settled there a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. What was his ministry with these new believers for those 18 months? It wasn't, you know, big rallies where he was having celebrities come by and lights and smoke and all of that. His ministry was to teach the Word of God. That's a good start for any church. That's the only start for any church. And so that was the first point of contact, really, that Paul had was to start the church around 49 AD. Secondly, we know that Paul wrote letters to this church. He wrote a couple of letters to them. So if we'll pull up number two, yeah, that one there. And, uh, you know, again, these years, some of these events covered multiple years, but um, he wrote letters to them while he was on his third missionary journey, while he was actually in Ephesus for those three years. He wrote a couple of letters to them. And we know this, of course, because we have the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a great book that we spent a great deal of time in a while back. But 1 Corinthians, he wrote from Ephesus, but that was not the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians. You've perhaps heard me say that before. We actually read in 1 Corinthians 5.9, that he wrote another letter. He says in 1 Corinthians, I wrote you in my letter. So he's talking about another letter in addition to 1 Corinthians. And what he told them in that letter, he highlights here, was not to associate with immoral people. But Paul wrote a couple of letters to them while he was on his third missionary journey. A third point of contact is after writing 1 Corinthians, which was his second letter to them, he made a visit to them and wrote yet another letter. He went across the sea and made a visit with the Corinthians. It seems like that visit came first. 
and it was not a good visit. So when he returned to Ephesus, he wrote them a harsh letter. That's Paul's word, not mine. We don't have that letter. We don't know the content of that letter in detail, but we know what Paul says about it. He says it was harsh. It was a a harsh letter that was written. Because he had a visit that was sorrowful, he wrote them a letter that was harsh. And if we pull up that first map, hopefully this will help you, again, kind of get your bearings. I know, especially if you're in the back, it's kind of small, but hopefully you'll see the red rectangles up there. You have Ephesus that's located in Asia Minor, and just west there, across the sea, you can get to Greece where Corinth is. And so Paul was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and he made a visit. Apparently, he had heard something about the Corinthians, that things weren't going that well. And so he zipped on over, easy for me to say. I don't know how long it took or how difficult it was. But as the narrative reads, it was just, whoop, he just was right there the next day. It was nonstop flight. And uh, he made it over to Corinth, and that's where he had that difficult meeting. He got there, and perhaps things were worse even than he heard. And so he returned to Ephesus, and he wrote a letter that he sent along with someone else, the harsh letter, which is now lost. Well, there was a fourth letter that was written. Because he had heard that they received his harsh letter and repented, he wrote a fourth letter. And that's the letter we're going through now. It's the book of 2 Corinthians, as we know it, because God only preserved two of them. And this fourth letter, 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote, from Macedonia as he was preparing for his next visit to them. He wanted to write one more letter, giving them some preparation of things he wanted them to know, things he wanted them to do before he came again. Because the last time he went, it was bad. So the next time he came, he really wanted to make sure things were all set in order. And so if we can pull up the the next map, it's the same one as before, but now I'm highlighting that uh, those red rectangles and that line there, That's the activity that took place between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. The books in your Bible, between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he had this sorrowful interaction with them from Ephesus with a visit and then a letter. And now, as we read 2nd Corinthians, Paul is all the way up here in Macedonia, up at the top of your screen. That's where Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi, all those cities are up there. That's where Paul is. And that's where he's writing the book that we know as 2nd Corinthians, but it's actually the fourth letter that he wrote to them. Got it all straight in your mind? Maybe, maybe not. Well, if you're just writing stuff down, you can dwell on it while you're trying to go to sleep tonight and it should put you right out. So Paul here is writing a fourth letter, which we know as 2 Corinthians. Now to go beyond that a bit, the fifth and final line, he made a final visit to Corinth. We don't have that documented in Scripture for us, but uh, as specifically as his other visits. But he did winter in Corinth. Around 57 AD, he spent the winter there, and it was from there on this particular visit that Paul wrote the book of Romans. So think of all the attention the Corinthians are getting. Four letters at least, multiple visits, I mean, we're looking at at least three visits, and he wrote Romans while he was there. You think he was teaching them what he was writing to the Romans? So they got the book of Romans while they were, you know, getting their own instruction from Paul. That's pretty remarkable stuff. And we know that he was there when he wrote the book of Romans for, because of a few clues that we have in Scripture. One of them comes from Romans 16.23 at the very end where Paul says, Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Cordus, the brother. This first man, Gaius or Gaius, however you want to pronounce it, 
he greets the Romans. Well, who was this man? He was one of two people that Paul baptized in Corinth. You remember that? Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for this man and Crispus. What fun names they had back then. But this was one of just very few people that received baptism from the hand of Paul in Corinth that we know of. And so Paul was actually at his house. He played host to the whole church. And if we actually want to fast forward even beyond the New Testament, we have more information about Corinth because some 40 years later, after Paul's last visit there, around the end of the first century, there was a man named Clement. And Clement, who was a disciple of the apostles, he wrote a letter to the Corinthians because the Corinthians were still messed up. (laughs) After all these issues they had and all the time Paul spent with them, they were just struggling to, to get on the right track. And so, Another generation later, you have Clement, and he writes a letter to them that we still have intact through church history. It's been preserved. It's a pretty amazing letter where he addresses several issues with the Corinthians. So out of all the churches that we know of in the New Testament here, the Corinthians really got a lot of attention, and and they really pop up a lot as we consider uh, all the interaction that they had. Not only did they have Paul, and not only did they have later Clement write to them, Clement wasn't an apostle or anything like that, but they also, we read in the New Testament, Apollos was sent to them. You remember in 1 Corinthians where some of them were saying, I am of Apollos? That's because Apollos had made a visit. And some of them were saying, I am of Peter or I am of Cephas. It's likely that Peter made a visit there. We also learn in the New Testament that Erastus visited the Corinthians. So they received a whole lot of biblical teaching, and they just continued to struggle. But you got to love them, because there they are, right? They're just around. They're just hanging around. And, and I think it's amazing. We'll see this today. Paul never gave up on them. As messed up as they were, and as much attention as they got for little results, they just, people didn't give up on them. They just kept visiting them, kept seeing them and saying, okay, what is it this week, Corinthians? You know, I don't know what I'm walking into. I'm going to visit Corinth. And people just, they were bearing with them. Well, between points three and four above, could we put up that fifth one again, Tyler? Between points three and four, the points of contact, where on point three, you have Paul making the sorrowful visit. He wrote the harsh letter. And then now when he's writing second Corinthians, something happened between those points. What happened was that Titus had made a visit down to Corinth and had returned. And so the reason why Paul is writing 2 Corinthians and he's doing so with joy is because Titus had just been with them. And Titus actually had a good visit with the Corinthians. You kind of get the the idea out of all these people that maybe Titus was the only one in history that had a good experience with the Corinthians. And he comes back to Paul and he says, things are looking good. And I want to show you that from our letter. Turn to 2 Corinthians 7 chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, and look at what Paul says about this report that Titus brought. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 5, Paul says, "'For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed,' comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, 
but also by the comfort with which He was comforted in you, as He reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, that's that harsh letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So something good happened in the Corinthian timeline there, where Paul wrote to them a harsh letter, and God used that letter. And that's what we're talking about today in chapter 2. I think all of that context is important because as we go back to chapter 2 and we start to look at what Paul is talking about, it can get complicated in a hurry if you don't have some of these elements in mind. And so let's think about the situation there, the situation that prompted Paul to write that harsh letter. Well, apparently there was an offender. We saw him mentioned there in chapter 7. Paul just said, the offender. And this offender caused many in the church to go anti-Paul, to be against the Apostle Paul. And that led to Paul's sorrowful visit. I have a feeling that Paul was in Ephesus on his third journey, and perhaps Chloe's people or whoever he was in contact with, they said, in Corinth, there's a mutiny forming. There's There's a division, there's a group within the church, and they do not like you. They are quite upset with your apostleship and your claims to authority. So Paul, with his letter, after his sad visit, he writes this letter like a sledgehammer to try to break them. He's just trying to bring them to the point of humility about this. And he says in chapter 7, it's not for himself. And he's not doing it willy-nilly just to hurt them. He doesn't want them to be sad. But he understands that in God's program, he was made an apostle. That they needed to hear what he had to say. They needed the instruction and the leading from him. And God used the letter. He used it to break the Corinthians and to bring them to repentance. And so now, as Paul writes 2 Corinthians, he can do so from a position of comfort, from a position of joy, and he's glad to write to them this go-around. But what happened to the offender, you might wonder? So, what did they do? What happened to this guy? Well, that's going to be the subject of our passage today as we get down Uh, into the later verses, and then next week we're really going to dwell on that. But let's get back to chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 4 and consider the situation again. Paul says, "...but I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. 
For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, this is talking about his harsh letter, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you, having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you that harsh letter with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So what's counterintuitive here about what Paul is saying is that the harsh letter he wrote, the sledgehammer he was taking to their pride, uh, spirit, their proud spirits, their pridefulness, it was written in love, Paul says. Paul wrote a harsh letter in love, and God used it. He wasn't seeking to make them sad. He wasn't seeking to grieve them, but he wanted to spur on repentance And you know that phrase, tough love, well, it is here demonstrated that Paul wrote to them tough words, but they were written in love. And this is very clearly stated in verse 4. I just read verse 4 for you. You see where Paul says here in that verse that he wanted them to know the love that he had for them because they shared in comfort and they shared in sorrow. Paul starts off this section by saying, if I was writing to you just to make you sad, what good would that do since we share in the same? Remember in chapter 1, Paul's talking about comfort, and he says, your comfort is our comfort, and our comfort is your comfort. There's a unity that we have in Christ where we share in the same comfort. We share in the same sufferings. And so Paul is saying, why would I write to you just to, you know, make you upset and to cause you this turmoil? because that's coming right back to me. We are one in Christ. He didn't want to hurt them. Clearly, Paul saw this letter as high stakes because it was harsh. It was high stakes communication, and it could have gone wrong, but God used it. He didn't want to hurt them, but on the contrary, he wrote to emphatically state his love for them. As you look again at verse 4, where Paul says, that they might know the love that he had, especially for them. The way that this is structured in the original language in Greek, the placement of love in this phrase is is given primary focus. It's placed earlier on in the construction so that there's this emphasis on love. He's saying, I didn't write with you with many tears so that you would be made sorrowful, but love is what I wanted you to know. Love is what I wanted you to experience. Love is what I wanted you to feel. I have this love especially for you, Paul says. We know he had a burden for all the churches, but he had a love especially for these middle children Corinthians. You kind of get the feeling they were like the middle child, right? He just had this love especially for them. And how was this love seen? Well, again, look at the verses I just read, verses 1 through 4. We can say that his love was seen in that harsh letter in his truth-telling. Because sometimes what love does is love pushes us to say things that are a little harsh. Love pushes us to say what needs to be said. Perhaps Paul had 
done his best, and we all struggle with this in relationships, but perhaps Paul had done his best to kind of put off conversations and prioritize things that needed to be addressed. But it all was coming to a head, and he just had to say it the way it is, because love demanded it. Because he loved them, he had to tell them what they needed to hear. This letter, this harsh letter, contained the confrontation that love requires. In MacArthur's commentary, he pointed out how Paul's harsh letter was really the fulfillment of Proverbs 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy, do you remember what they are? They're deceitful. The wounds of a friend are faithful, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And so MacArthur said this, that sensitivity and the desire to avoid unnecessary confrontation must always be balanced with a commitment to the purity of the church. You see, love is not only found in the former, in sensitivity. Love is not only found there. And some of you might have the false notion in your mind that that love is found in just being sensitive and avoiding awkward conversations or, or confrontation. But actually, love is at the heart of purity, isn't it? Especially the purity of the church, the purity of our families, your own personal purity. Love confronts. Love confronts threats to purity. So love is not only found in sensitivity, but it's also found in a commitment to the purity of the church. So Paul's love in this letter was found in his truth-telling, and Paul's love in that harsh letter was also found in his tears. The Corinthians received this harsh communication from Paul, but it was written on tear-soaked parchment, wasn't it? Paul says he wrote to them with many tears. And that's not the first time that Paul said to a church that he wept for them. I get the impression that much of Paul's ministry involved crying because he cared about people. Paul cared deeply for the souls of those who were redeemed. And this is quite instructive for those who are in ministry. An older commentator from the 1800s, James Denny, he said this about that line, this passage reveals more clearly perhaps than any passage in the New Testament, the essential qualification of the Christian minister a heart pledged to his brethren in the love of Christ. We shall not make others weep for that for which we have not wept. We shall not make that touch the hearts of others which has not first touched our own. Paul wept first, as the Corinthians may have been sorrowful for his harsh rebuke. They may have lost sleep and been grieved. But Paul here is saying, I lost sleep first. I was grieved first because of my love for you. Paul's desire wasn't to make people cry. That's not what he wanted. I mean, that's what, that's what nobody in ministry wants. As a pastor, I can say with total frankness, absolute transparency, I don't want to make any of you cry. Because, of course, we're all thinking about we're on this pilgrimage to heaven where God will wipe away every tear. And there will be no crying, and we want that now, don't we? Well, I'm sure Paul didn't want to make them cry. I'm sure he didn't want to cry himself. He desired joy-filled relationships with his converts, with his children in the faith. And we see this from several letters that he wrote in the New Testament. I, I want you to see a few of these. 
Listen to how Paul talks about his relationships with his converts. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Paul wrote to that church saying, Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. That's the kind of relationship he wanted with the churches. I'm going to be joyful and share that with you. I urge you, be joyful and share it with me. That makes for a much happier missionary visit, doesn't it? 1 Thessalonians 2.20, very simple, short statement. He tells the Thessalonians, for you are our glory and joy. You are our joy. And to Timothy, you know, I don't think Paul had favorites, but if he ever did have a favorite, it may have been Timothy. He wrote to him and saying, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. He got joy from seeing his children in the faith walk with the Lord. He got joy in seeing the faith of the churches. And we have living examples of this. It's happened generation after generation as God has continued to build His church. And I wanted to share with you a personal note that we got. This is um, a letter that was sent out on the bulletin board back there for a number of weeks. It's a Christmas letter that we got from our church's very first pastor, Dan Lupton. He and his wife, Nancy, founded our church in 1970. And at the end of last year, he sent us this letter, and he put a personal note at the end of it for our church, and he wrote, we rejoice in the birth of OHBC, and how kind of him to use the new name. <laughs> we rejoice in the birth of OHBC 52 years ago, and its strength today. We pray for you continually. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done. I mean, can't you just feel the heart of a pastor there? And, and how he just, like Paul, has joy knowing that the Lord is still at work, the Lord is still building His church, that by faith we're walking with the Lord in the strength of His might. What joy, what zeal. That's the heart that Paul had. And so we see here that Paul wrote this letter and God did, in fact, use it. And there's one more point of application I want to make before we move on to verse 5. From this, of course, we can learn the value of Christian relationships and the high price we should put on our Christian relationships as Paul so cared for the church. But we can also learn this. At times, there's wisdom in using a letter as a forerunner to meeting in person. Paul's writing them a letter, the harsh letter, and he's writing them this letter, knowing that he's coming back to Corinth. And he's using these as like, I don't know, marinades or something, getting ready for the main event. He's using them as precursors. And Paul, look at verse 3 again with me. Paul had great confidence that they would hear him out in his letters and obey. And if I didn't have, you know, my submission to the Word of God and my understanding of what God was doing through Paul, I would say, Paul, you're crazy to have confidence in the Corinthians. <laughs> but he says to them, 
that he writes to them because he has confidence in them. See that in verse 3? Having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. He had confidence that the majority would hear him out and obey his instruction. He believed in them, which is amazing, that they would take the opportunity to repent before his return, and they did. Sometimes God will use a letter. He used Paul's letter, of course, and He might use a letter in your life too. Sometimes the best thing you can do is to sit down and write a letter and say what you need to say without any interruptions and pray that God uses it so that in a future interaction, you can have a conversation about that letter and maybe things will be different. Against the odds that we would have given it, Paul's confidence was right. And perhaps you've put odds against your own letter writing, and maybe you shouldn't. Maybe God would use that communication in your life too. Well, let's remember that all of this came about in Corinth because of an offender in the church, and that's what Paul addresses next specifically. Let's pick it up in verse 5 and read through verse 8. Paul says, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Well, now Paul is going to tell us a few things, and we'll start it this week and continue next week. Uh, But he's going to tell us a few things here, starting with the sorrow causer. You see in verse 5, he's speaking of a person who has caused sorrow. We do not know the identity of this person, and we actually don't know the exact sin of this person. In church history, there have been a number of people who have taken the view that this man uh, who has caused sorrow is the same man that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians. Maybe you remember in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, there's a man among you who has his father's wife. Put him out of the church. Deliver his soul over to Satan. Some people say that this is the same man. I can't jump to that conclusion. I think it actually might be even more likely that this is just a person who was a Paul hater, who rallied other people to be against Paul, a sect leader within the church. I kind of tend to believe here that as the church was planted and divisions popped up among them, that the people became more anti-people than they were pro-people. Remember in 1 Corinthians 1, I already mentioned, some of you say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Well, I think perhaps since that letter had been written over the course of time, the people became more, oh, I am anti-Paul instead of I am pro-Apollos, or whatever else it may be. And I think that this man who caused them sorrow was the ringleader for the anti-Paul group. And as we looked at at the end of chapter 1, the last couple of weeks, we know that when Paul had to change his plans on his missionary journeys, that that really fueled his enemy's fire. That those who were against him in Corinth Their lies were fueled by Paul's change of plans, and it became a a large and powerful sect within the church. Just this week, I I had a meeting with a man that was supposed to be in person over coffee, 
He's from Wyoming. He lives in Wyoming in Laramie. And to plan a trip to Utah in January is... Hmm, what's the word for that? Yeah, it's a lot of things. Uh, maybe not, not the most solid of plans that you could make, right? From Wyoming to Utah in January. So we were to meet uh, over coffee, but uh, the day before I received a phone call from his assistant and was told, hey, uh, let's do Zoom. Uh, he's not leaving Laramie. And I thought, how silly it would, it would be for me to take that communication and say, what a fickle, vacillating character this man is. He can't keep his word about anything. I'm not going to meet with him. I'm not going to listen to a word he has to say. But that's exactly what the Corinthians did to Paul, don't you know? As Paul had to change his plans, now you had this anti-Paul group saying, he's so fickle, he's led by his flesh. And that was just fuel for their fire. Well, As Paul heard the disturbing news again, he visited, it was sorrowful, he wrote a letter, it was harsh, but the letter got through to the majority, and they identified, apparently, and addressed the ringleader. They identified the offender among them, and they addressed this offender. How did they go about doing that? Well, we'll tackle that next week. How should a church go about identifying and addressing ringleaders of division? Ooh, maybe that'll get you back next week, huh? That'll be a good one. But for now, let's just consider this. This offender had a great impact in the church, didn't he? You see how it affected Paul. Paul was torn up because of the division in the church and the offense that was caused all around. There was actual sin in the church caused by this offender. And his action was the main reason for sorrow in the church. You see that in verse 5? that this man was the one who caused sorrow. And Paul says, he didn't cause me sorrow, but he caused sorrow to all of you. He's the first domino to drop. He's the cause of your grief. So that's what we want to say about the sorrow causer this week. I want to think too about the church's response. Again, we'll get into more detail next week, but there are a few points we can consider now. Out of their sorrow... The church took action against the offender. We see that in verse 6. Paul says, Sufficient for this offender is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Now, that's an interesting verse. Anybody going to make that their life verse? (laughs) Sufficient for such a one was the punishment inflicted by the majority. Now, I I like instead of saying punishment by the majority here, I think actually a better reading would be the penalization inflicted by the many. The, the penalty or the penalization inflicted by the many. And we don't have the details of what they specifically did in this instance. Yet we know the result that their response led to the taking away of his comfort. As Paul gives them instructions in the verses that follow, he says to reaffirm your love, to comfort him. Well, what does that mean? He wasn't feeling the love anymore. His comfort had been taken away. He wasn't feeling loved by this church. And Paul was pleased with their action, but he wanted to let them know that they weren't done. Because God's ultimate plan, when conflict arises in the church, God's ultimate plan is always reconciliation, isn't it? Well, it's important to consider here, as Paul talks this church through their response, the church's response here, how he didn't give up on them, or even the man who caused offense. 
And I'm convinced that this is a trait of good and godly leadership. You want to be an example of godliness? You want to be a good leader in whatever capacity God has given you to influence people and to lead people? I'd say have this trait. Don't give up on people. Don't give up until they have absolutely disqualified themselves beyond repair. Don't give up on people. Now, I'm not saying be naive. I'm not saying go out there and just be a naive person. But I'm saying this, with the mind of Christ, with the love of God in your heart, don't give up on people. Think again how Paul had confidence in the Corinthians. I wouldn't have, but Paul didn't give up on them, did he? He kept writing to them. He kept visiting them. He had confidence in them to hear him out as the Spirit convicted them. But perhaps even more stunning, Paul had confidence in the future of this offender, the one who I think it's most likely was the ringleader against him. Paul had confidence that this man had a future, had a future with God, had a future with the church, not send him off to another church, write a letter to another pastor and let the pastor know he's welcome to go there. That's not what Paul said. Paul says that he has confidence that this man can be comforted by that same Corinthian church, that the same people who took comfort away can now return comfort to this man. The same church that he wasn't feeling the love from can now come wrap their arms around him in love because apparently he had repented. Apparently it was time for him to be restored and he was to be restored with that same church. How could Paul have the confidence in this process? It's because he had confidence in God's work in not only saving people, but bringing them through to the end. Philippians 1.6, written by Paul, for he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Paul had great confidence that the work that God began, he would finish. And Paul's greatest desire wasn't just for holiness in the church. Now, obviously, that was a grand desire of Paul's. But it wasn't just for holiness. It wasn't, hey, if you find sin, kick the guy out. Tell him, not welcome here anymore. This is a holy church. He had a desire for that, but also a desire for unity. Has he repented? Bring him back in. Bring him back into the church. Restore him in front of everybody. Put on a display of Christian unity that the, word, or that the world rather could just never show, but that Christians can show because we have the unity of Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling within. We're the temple of God. And so that was the church's response, as Paul desired it, to push this whole process toward reconciliation. Paul's goal was relationship healing. And he gives us three words here that we'll just introduce this week and look at next week. The words forgiveness, comfort, and love. Let's look at verses 7 and 8 one more time. He says, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Well, that word for forgive is not the most common word for forgive in the New Testament. It's a word that means freely and graciously give someone back something to freely and graciously give this man back the favor that he had with this church. 
put him back in favor with the church freely and graciously. That's the emphasis. The word for comfort that comes next, it's that familiar word we got to know in chapter 1. Paul used that word several times. And that word, of course, means to come alongside and to encourage somebody with the truth, in the truth and with the truth. So not only are you to restore his favor, but you're to come alongside him and exhort him, edify him, encourage him with the truth. And then finally, he says in verse 8, to reaffirm love. I think it's interesting that that verse starts with the word wherefore. Did you notice that? It doesn't say therefore, it says wherefore. I did a little search, and there's only two times in the New American Standard Bible, 1995, the one we use, where wherefore comes up. Now, it came up quite a bit in the 1977 translation, and I, my thesis, my theory here is that when they updated it, they forgot a couple of wherefores, and they, they meant to make them therefores, and it just didn't happen. But that is definitely beside the point. Paul says, therefore or wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your agape for him. That's the word agape, the word for love in the New Testament, the most common word. He's saying here to this church, make sure that this man knows that you love him. Don't hold back now. It's time to reconcile. It's time to be restored. And so next week, we'll think through that more and more and talk about the process of confrontation and restoration. But I want to leave you with this this week. How astonishing is it that Paul is now advocating for the man who is advocating against him? Isn't that incredible? This man who didn't support Paul. I mean, no matter who you think this man is or what he did, he wasn't supportive of Paul. And now Paul is advocating for him. He's like stepping in between this man and the church and saying, take him back. How could Paul do that? Well, this is the power of loving Christian relationships. The power of real faith paired with real love. When there is true, genuine, authentic faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and real, genuine, authentic love for Him and His people, this stuff happens. It doesn't take away sin. There will still be sin. There will still be confrontation. There will still be hardship. There will be divisions that wrongly occur. But you know what else there can be? True reconciliation. True restoration. Something that can only happen in God's church. Loving restoration to the people of God. And I want us to carry that with us this week and as we enter into the next section and we think through what would that look like today. Bring that mindset into next Sunday, okay? Let's pray. God, we do thank you so much that you are faithful and that you have brought us to the place of genuine faith and love. God, we ask that through the rest of the day today and through this week, we would consider how it is you would use us for reconciliation. If it's writing a letter, if it's making a visit, whatever it may be, that we would be truth tellers who prioritize truth and that we would desire for your church among your people to have both holiness and unity. Give us that desire deep within us that we would be led by your spirit in our efforts there. In Jesus' name, amen.